You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. And you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate but you shall be called my delight is in her in your land married for the lord delights in you and your land shall be married for as a young man marries a young woman so shall your sons marry you and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your god rejoice over you this is the word of the lord and now if you would turn with me to the sermon text in our new testament text for this morning, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's wonderful to be with you all this morning. Let me uh, read a few verses here from Ephesians, as well as one verse from Galatians, as our sermon text this morning. Ephesians three fourteen and 15. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And then from Galatians uh, chapter 4. Uh, verse 25 and 26. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that by your word and by your spirit, you build up your church. You speak to us now through your word and by your spirit. And so we pray that you would do the miracle of preaching. You would speak through me as the preacher and work through us as the congregation of your saints to build us up in the most holy uh, faith that we would walk in your ways, we would apply it to our hearts and walk in all your ways. Uh, We ask this now in Jesus' name, and amen. Well, it's wonderful to be with you all uh, this morning. My name is Ben Zorns. I'm a a pastor at uh, Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, and got to know uh, Brian Brown over the last several years. And so uh, uh, thank you, and thank you for opening your pulpit to me and and looking forward to sharing uh, the word with you this morning. I know that you all have been working through a series of authority and power, and Brian assigned me uh, the job of stepping on the toes of uh, modern egalitarianism uh, in in the household. And our misunderstanding in uh, modern culture of the structure of the household. Modern views on gender roles either want to invert or flatten what the Bible teaches on the structure of authority and responsibility in the home. 
Scripture teaches us that the man is the head of the wife, and in turn, the wife renders submission to her husband. And then together, the couple beget and train up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And this is domestic terrorism. (laughs) This vertical structure to the household, however, is being, as I said, subverted, inverted, flattened, turned inside out, whatever mangling you want to call it, uh, by our um, overlords. The patriarchy, we're told, must be smashed. We aren't told what authority structure will, will replace it. Don't ask that. Don't ask what we're going to uh, replace it with, but it must be toppled. As an example of this trajectory, of this uh, slow march to replacing the biblical structure of the household, as an example of that, our current U.S. Congress struck gendered familial terminology, i.e. father, mother, son, daughter, etc., from the House's rules for legislatures. This is just one more effort by the godless to further erode the verticality of the biblical structure for families. We must not have these categories of father or mother, sister, brother. We must not uh, uh, look uh, at the world the way the world has been made by God. We must change all the categories, redefine all the categories. But Psalm 11.3 warns us, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? So it's vital that we in the church in particular, that we understand both how God made the world and then as those who are in Christ, how we are to strive to live in this world according to our assigned duties. You'll notice that uh, in, in, the, in the language of modern, uh, of modern uh, culture, uh, the, the context, uh, the, uh, the statement of power is often used, who's in power, who's abusing their power. But what we oftentimes miss is the fact that with the power, with the strength, uh, there's, uh, we, we oftentimes overlook the fact that responsibility is undergirding uh, true power, which is why God places men as the head of the, the home that they might take responsibility, not wielding their authority um, maliciously or abusively, but that they might take responsibility for this household, that the, the, the lives within their household are protected and provided for. And so when we, seek to, when we hear the modern talk, when we see on our social media feeds these declarations of removing a certain sort of power structure, what you should see behind that is a removal of responsibility, particularly for men to be protectors and providers, which means what they're looking for is vulnerable people to devour. And so as we look at our text, when we think about fatherhood and motherhood, husbands and wives, these categories, we need to sweep out all the clutter that we've just accumulated by living in the 21st century. These roles of fatherhood and motherhood are not optional add-ons which you can discuss with the dealership. They aren't social constructs which support the oppression of victims. They aren't the evolutionary development of our species' ability to babble some sounds and then linking them with our immediate ancestors. They aren't interchangeable, interchangeable parts of machinery. We can't just swap out male and female or father and mother. Uh, we can't just, they're not interchangeable parts of machinery. Bases, in other words, ought not to attempt the soprano part. 
what we see as society rejects the biblical order for family is not an absence of fatherhood and motherhood, but we get mangled fatherhood and motherhood. We get satanic fatherhood and tyrannic motherhood. We get state-run protection and provision and state-run nurture and rearing, all because those with their hands on the wheel of society are of their father, the devil. As, as John eight forty four, when Jesus is combating the, the Pharisees of the day, in one of those wonderful statements of uh, Jesus, meek and mild, he says to them, you're of your father, the devil. Very winsome of Jesus, isn't it? To call these who are seeking to uh, lay heavy burdens, to uh, undermine the, the, the gospel, to under, undermine the, the promises and the covenant that God had made to Abraham, and God, Jesus pronounces to them, you, your attempts to undo all this and to turn this all inside out shows and proves that you're of your father, the devil. You're undermining the covenant grace that God had revealed to Abraham and it carried through all of Old Testament history. And in our day, the same sort of purveyors of destruction and undermining the, the covenant of God's grace with his people ought to be called such. Your father and mother are earthly shadows of cosmic realities. And that cosmic reality is that if you're in Christ, God is your father and the church is your mother. That truth is made plain and evident in these two texts from the pen of Paul. In Ephesians three fourteen and 15, Paul bends his knee to God the father. Every family derives its name from God's fatherhood. You don't have family without fatherhood. And you don't have any of it without God the Father and Creator. And so what Paul's doing in Ephesians 4, or in Ephesians 3, is, is this wonderful, we don't get it when it comes through in the English, but there's this wonderful punning that he's, it, it's, a, it's a proof text for why we should make good puns. Because Paul is making a play on words here that we, we miss out on in the English. Uh, in, in Greek, you can't say family, patria, without saying father, patera. In other words, God's fatherhood fills the world and fills our earthly families. He says, I, I bow my knees unto the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And so God as our father, God as father of the world, God as uh, sovereign over the world, his fatherhood is what fills this world, fills our, our, our experience uh, with, uh, and informs uh, what it means to be a family. And, and every family derives its name from the fatherhood of God. Our, in other words, God's fatherhood fills the world and fills our earthly families as the inescapable reality. In him and him alone, we live and move and have our being. But beyond that, furthermore, God has taken a bride for his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And she, the church, is our mother. And this is the, the point that Paul makes while in, in Galatians 4, while he's making a case that we are delivered from the bondage to sin, which the Mosaic law revealed. And Paul uses this imagery of Hagar and Sarah, two mothers from the Old Testament, from early on in the story of Scripture. Two mothers, one a slave, one a free woman. 
And the rhetorical question being presented to the Galatian church was this, which one is your mother? Mother Kirk is a fertile mother because she's marked by grace and thus life springs from her, whereas Hagar, the bondwoman, or Sinai, as Paul says in in Galatians 4, brings only bondage and death, Galatians 4, 26. The free grace of God ministered to us through the faithful church is the basis for how we're brought into the new birth and nurtured in it. The bondwoman, however, only begets slaves, slaves to sin and slaves to self-righteousness. To sum up, God is father, and thus we have fatherhood. For those in Christ, God is their father, and consequently, the church is their mother. For those not in Christ, the devil is their father, and the death of Sinai's law is their mother, and this mother devours her own. As always, it isn't whether you will have father and mother, but which one you will have. And so children are the fruit of this union between a father and a mother. Children who grow up without parents or with unmarried parents are faced with a deck of statistics stacked against them. With few exceptions, their lifetime income is significantly lower. Their education is stunted. Their likelihood of being abused and abusing in turn shoots through the roof. Their prospects are bleak by almost every metric. Children weren't intended to exist in a covenantal void, whether it be the artificial wombs that scientists are trying to invent or surrogacy, which uh, Hollywood uh, bombshells can't be bothered to have their body marred and scarred by pregnancy, and so they hire surrogacy, or gay and lesbian uh, appropriating straight culture and hiring surrogacy to a surrogate mother to sire or to raise their... uh, have uh, nurture their child. Children were not intended to exist in a covenantal void. Scripture is concerned with bastard children. It's concerned with children who can't trace their lineage, children who don't know who their father is, which is why it placed such heavy penalties on rape and premarital sex and adultery in Leviticus 18. The concern was it didn't want children who didn't know who their father was. As well as it not only was concerned about penalties being applied for uh, potential illegitimate children, but also made provision for the care of of any fatherless children in Deuteronomy 16.11 and Psalm 68 verse 5 that he places the the solitary at home. He's the defender of widows and orphans. So while on one hand, God uh, is concerned in the the Mosaic law about making sure that there aren't a bunch of illegitimate children running around who have no sense of belonging in regards to who their father is, where their parentage is. But he also makes provision for the care of such fatherless children. So if you are a father or mother, you must not think of your duty as father or mother as being in a separate container from your marriage vows and the consummation of those vows. You are a husband and wife first. And the potency of this covenantal love produces children. Your children 
are the fruit of a promise, even as the whole family of believers are the children of the promise. And so in our marriages, the, the, the fruit that results from the covenant union and covenant consummation of a husband and a wife is, is the fruit of their promise to each other, their vows to each other, which is a, merely a, a shadow and a reflection of the covenant, the promise which God has made between Christ and the church to bring forth children of the promise. And so fathers, you are first and foremost husbands which are called to be faithful to their promise, to your promise of loving and cherishing. Mothers are first wives, which are called to faithfully fulfill their vow to submit and obey. A father, which exhibits for his children that he doesn't beam with delight over their mother, as we read in in Isaiah 62. Let me flip there real quick. Listen to this description that God says he will, how God delights over Israel. God says this, for as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over over thee. And so when you imagine a wedding that you've been to and you see the bridegroom and how his eyes light up and he beams with joy as his bride walks down the aisle is the picture which God picks up and uses as a a shadow glory of his great love for his people. And this then is how we are to uh, imitate our Lord in our marriages. Husbands, if you are not exhibiting for your children that that same beaming with delight over your mother, not just on your wedding day, but each day beaming with delight over their mother. Or if you aren't attentive to her, as 1 Peter 3, 7 warns, that your prayers will be hindered by not hearing and listening and being attentive to your wife. Or if you don't shower her with love, as 1 Timothy tells us, and Paul warns that he who does not provide for his own household might as well be an infidel. You are teaching your children, husbands, if you act in this way, if you act contrary to what Scripture requires of husbands, you are teaching your children to railroad their mother. Proverbs 10.1 warns us of this, that a, 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 a foolish son is like bone cancer to his mother, is, is a grief and a weight and a burden to her heart. And husbands, fathers... Uh, displaying a, an indifference, a disgust, a nitpicking towards their wives, unattentive to their wives, not showering her with provision and love, are teaching their sons and daughters to railroad their wife and to be a grief to her. So husbands are to love their wives practically by full bank accounts, full cupboards, full closets, and full wombs. And all the wives said Amen. Mothers which run down their husband in front of the kids, swerving the opposite direction that he is leading the family, or criticizing his leadership at every turn, are teaching her children, she's teaching her children to be lawless rebels. Wives respect their husband by bearing his name and being his glory. She demonstrates this respect practically By not being an indecipherable code to get into, but by being ready for him and being and responding to him in all spheres of their relations, whether it be sexually, directionally, or financially. So while husbands are called to fill, wives are called to receive and be filled. 
lazy, inattentive husbands, and bitter, nagging wives are teaching the children more than just how to be unpleasant people. A sin-riddled marriage is presenting a false gospel and a marred understanding of God the Father, Christ the Son, and his bride, the church. Let me say that again. A sin-riddled marriage is presenting a false gospel to your children and a marred understanding of who God the Father is, who Christ the Son is, and what the church is supposed to be. And so it's vital that we see fathers and mothers are cosmic categories. Husbands show their children how Christ laid down his life for the church. Wives show their, show their children what joyful obedience to Christ should look like. Not only are you teaching them about the fatherhood, about fatherhood and motherhood, but also the glorious gospel of sacrificial love responded to in joyful response. The verticality then of the household, which God lays out for us in his word, this verticality is instructive precisely because it answers to the verticality of the creator-creature divide. That God is the father of Israel, the father of his people. That Christ is the head of the church. This verticality in our earthly homes is not just an optional add-on. It's not just some people do it this way and others, others choose not to. This is the way in which God made marriage to be in order that children in particular might grow up and see and understand the authority and the, the, the headship and the care with which God the Father cares for his people, which Christ the head of the church cares for and lays down his life for the church and the way in which the church joyfully obeys and joyfully follows her Lord wherever he leads her, provided sumptuously by his grace. And so these covenantal duties are not pie-in-the-sky intangibles. Rather, these spiritual duties are earthy and are covered in sawdust and flour. In Scripture, Father's name You see in the Old Testament, the father is given the task of naming their sons. And so the father's word we see carries great weight. Fathers provide and protect. Fathers represent God to their families and their families to God. Fathers correct and teach. Fathers sacrifice and intercede. Fathers rule and lead. Fathers head their home. And all of that, you can see, if you look closely, you can see that in all of that, we see a picture of how God the Father made provision for the salvation of us, his people. How the Father has led us and guided history and sovereignly guided the story of history so that we might be redeemed by the sending of his Son for our salvation. Mothers respond to this headship by being fruitful, by being a garden enclosed, as Song of Solomon describes it. Indeed, without the father, she cannot bear fruit. As the one who bears and nurtures new humans, she's to be held in high honor. What I tell my children as I'm raising my, my sons in particular is I say, you treat, your, you treat my wife like a queen. So while I'm on this trip, my brother graduated high school yesterday, so that's why I was in, in town here. And when I left, I told my son, my, my six-year-old son, you're the, head, you're, the, you're the man of the house, but you treat your mama like a queen. Speak to her such. Treat her with great honor and reverence. 
moms. You are to be the sort of fountains of wisdom which might be worn proudly around the neck of their offspring. We read in Proverbs that the wisdom of the mother, uh, sons in particular, to wear the wisdom of their mother like swag. They're to beam with joy over the wisdom that their mother has imparted to them. And so mothers, what a great gift and a great calling to uh, load up your sons in particular, your sons and daughters, with things in which to glory, wisdom in which to glory, wisdom in which to boast of to the world. Wives and mothers, they are to be industrious and laugh at all the troubles which are around the bend. And how many wives and mothers give way to fretting and and anxiety and stressing out and trying to nag their husbands into some sort of action instead of obeying the the, the picture laid out for us in Proverbs 31 of the, the wife there who laughs at the days to come. She is fearless and free of anxiety and fretting and so joyfully follows her head wherever he leads. Mothers give glorified life and nourishment that is provided by the father. And so when we look at the household, what we see is fathers facing outward, facing the battle, facing the challenge, facing the threat, while mothers face inward, pouring grace and mercy and love and nurture into the garden that it might grow and be fruitful. In Reformed theology, we generally emphasize and, and we, when we talk about the salvation and, and grace and the, the, the gospel, one of the things we've come to emphasize in particular is justification and sanctification. We, we blast through the megaphone that you are not saved by your works of righteousness. You are justified in God's sight only because of Christ's righteousness and death in your place, and rightly so. That was the great... Uh, doctrine that was recovered in the Reformation by Martin Luther and the other reformers was salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, that we are justified freely by his grace. And we we do right to trumpet that through a megaphone to all the world, that it is not by good that I have done, it's nothing but the blood of Jesus by which we find our salvation and, and grace. It's all of grace. And then we exhort one another. We're familiar. If you've spent any time in a church, you've likely been in a Bible study where you read the text and you discuss it, and then we, we usually say, so what? <laughs> How do we apply this to our lives? How do we walk in obedience to what Christ has commanded us? How do we obey what's been set forth? How do we grow in holiness? How do we take these, these truths even this morning, and how do we put them into practice in our lives? How do we grow in our sanctification? God has set us apart to be a holy people. And so how do we, we study God's word, we see that we're not saved by our works, but because of that grace, we're compelled to then grow in holiness and righteousness and Christ-likeness. And so in Reformed theology, it's not uncommon to, to, blast, uh, to blast that emphasis, to, uh, to trumpet those truths of justification and sanctification, that we exhort each other to holiness and growth and sanctification because God has set us apart to be a holy people. But we must not overlook or gloss over the fact that one of the terms which is frequently included in the New Testament descriptions of salvation is adoption. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 in particular. You see, God the Father, by the redeeming work of his Son, has delivered you from the bondage, from bondage to the law of sin and death, where once you and I were sons of the devil. 
We were once of our father, the devil. By Adam's sin, we were under subjection to uh, the devil as our father. But by his grace, we've been brought out of that. Uh, The son has delivered us from bondage to the law of sin and death. But this isn't like one cruel slave master being defeated by another cruel slave master and you're just a slave caught in the crossfire. Rather, Paul teaches us that you are no more a servant, you are a son or daughter. The gospel is uh, not just that you've been traded from one slave owner to another, one cruel taskmaster to another. The gospel is that where once you were a slave to death and sin, you are now a son of God your Father. You are now a daughter of the Most High King. In other words, you now have a share in the inheritance which belongs to Christ Jesus. God has given all things into the hand of his son, Jesus Christ. And what are all those things that he's placed in the hands of Jesus? Resurrection life, everlasting, boundless, abounding joy, unending glory. You have been adopted as sons and daughters. You have been brought into the household of God. Your father in heaven has given all things to his son and his son has given all he has and all he is to the church, to Mother Kirk. He's given to her the bread of life and the wine of relief and she has spread a table for the nourishment of her children. So when you think about your own household in mirroring and being a shadow of this vertical structure, this ordering which God has made, it's not just a a traditional way. It's not just traditional values. These are cosmic realities which point us to see and behold the great grace and gospel, the abounding goodness which God has given to us through Christ. Husbands, or I should say wives, when you prepare a table uh, for, for dinner, What you're doing is you're taking the blood, sweat, and tears of your husband and you're laying it all on the table for the family to feast upon. And so too, we rightly take of the Lord's Supper each Lord's Day because God the Father has given all things into the hands of Christ and he, the Son, has given all things to the church. And the church spreads a table for the saints, the children of God, to feast upon. These, we are children of grace and glory. As one author put it, This is the way the world will end. Not with a bang, not with a whimper, but with wedding bells. Let's give thanks to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your word to us. We ask that you would build us up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord as we seek to raise our own families in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We thank you for these glorious categories, these glorious truths, these cosmic realities which you set before us that we might see through them the great glory of God our Father the, the church is our mother, and Christ as the head of the church. We pray you give us grace to apply it in our own homes, in our own lives. We give thanks for it all in Jesus' name, and amen.